Good evening. How are you? Good. I'm good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, my name's RD. I'm one of the pastors here at Door Creek Church, and I want to welcome you to our Saturday night service. If you're watching up north, to the Sunday morning service, obviously, if you're watching it on Sunday morning. Um, if you have a Bible, grab it. We'll be in 1 John. That's not John, but it's 1 John, very much towards the end of the Bible. 1 John chapter 3, and we're in a series. This is our th fourth week, third week, one of the weeks. And uh, we're in the series, and we've been looking at some themes from a letter that John wrote. John, one of the apostles, one of the disciples that he wrote to a church. And we've looked at different themes of truth, and um, we've looked at enduring in the faith. Uh, we've looked at kind of what the gospel is, uh, all these things. And, and this weekend, what I want to do is look at uh, a section of scripture here that shows John kind of going just for a moment crazy. Right? He just kind of gets overwhelmed with emotion and he just kind of shouts out. And I want to look at that. And so if you're there, and if not, you can just follow along um, with me, I'm going to pick it up actually at the end of chapter 2 in verse 28 and then read through chapter 3 to verse 3, okay? Verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in him, Jesus, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are the children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. This is the word of the Lord. So what we want to do here is um, look at, at, actually, you probably can't tell from the text, but John has kind of an outburst. If you look at verses 28 and 29, he's being a very good teacher, a very good pastor. He's just outlining like sometimes pastors do. Uh, here's the truth. Here's who Jesus is. Here's kind of the basics of the gospel. Doesn't mean he didn't have emotion, but there's nothing kind of jumping off the page that shows us that he's really gone crazy. But what happens in verse 1 of chapter 3, he totally goes berserk, right? The truth goes crazy. He's saying, here's Jesus, and, and you're in him, and all well and good. And he says, see! Yeah, you looked up. <laughs> he may be crazy too, right? See what great love the Father has lavished on us, right? In the English translation, they put in exclamation points to try and get across the idea that John's broken up his thought. So what happens here, and if you keep reading in verse 4, is John's writing, writing, writing. He has this outburst, God is amazing, and then he keeps writing again. And what I want to do is say, man, how does that happen? In C.S. Lewis's word, how, how can we get the good infection of what John's laying down here? How can we catch it? So the title of the message is I'm bringing back a word I've used since my first message I ever gave here. And the title of the message is A Gospelicious Christian. Everybody say it with me. Say gospelicious. gospelicious. Oh, you sound so good. Right? Not a reality TV show. No, from the word of God, a gospelicious Christian. And I, I think John is showing us what that looks like. Someone who is seeing and beholding the love of God in such a way that it goes out of his mind into his heart and explodes on the page. So the truth goes from something he understands, not just something he understands, but something he stands under. Right? How, how can we 
be people like that, right? Don't we want to be Christians like that and not just Christians who continue saying, yes, Jesus is this and yes, Jesus is this. But to say that and then all of a sudden say, wait a minute, he did this for me and just blow it up. <laughs> That's what John, John does it. He writes it. And so we want to look at that, the outburst, see how he does it. And so I want to just see three things tonight that I think help us to maybe catch this gospelicious infection. How can we get it? How can we have it? How can we possess it? Number one, we got to see the man. I got the three M's, okay? So if you're taking notes, very nice. You're welcome. Number one, see the man. Number two, see the message. And number three, see the miracle. So we want to see the man, Jesus. We want to see the message, the gospel, and all the Bible. And we want to see the miracle that you are a Christian or that you could be a Christian. Or you're a Christian, you think you're a Christian, but you're not. And we can make you a Christian by understanding the gospel in a fresh way. Okay? So first one. In the verse 1 of chapter 3, there's this great word that is translated see. In the old King James Version, it's translated behold. So it says, behold, what great love. Or in our translation, it says see. And this verse, it doesn't mean just to like look at and then look away. Uh, John's saying in, in the Greek, it's this idea that you're examining something, that you're gazing into something, that you're looking at something like in a mirror, and you're really trying to understand what it is. So it works two ways. It works the first way by trying to understand what something is off the bat. Like, I don't know what it is, so I want to examine it and look at it and try and understand it. But it also works if it's something you know in your whole life and you want to see it more deeply, right? As if you've seen something like every day you drive to work and you see something and you know where everything is on your drive because you drive the same way. But there's one day that comes along and you just see something that you've never seen before, right? Now you're beholding it. And what that word means is literally to hold on to. So I'm beholding it. I'm holding on to something. And so John is saying, I want you to see something. I want you to behold something. And the first thing we have to do is see the man, and that's Jesus, right? He's not explicitly in this verse, but he's implicitly and explicitly throughout all the scripture. And you cannot get the infection of the gospel if you don't see Jesus and see the real Jesus and examine who Jesus is, right? You, you can't, it can't happen. Now, there are a lot of versions of Jesus floating around. He's probably more popular now than he's ever been in the history of time. Books and books are written about him. And so what I want to do first is kind of separate uh, what other people who are religious leaders do versus what Jesus does. Right? This is only a few minutes. I can't give you the entire biography of Jesus that's found in the four gospel accounts. But I want to just sketch something real quickly that we want to see before we move on. But every other religious leader who's ever lived, every other spiritual prophet who's ever lived says basically this. Right, I'm a prophet, I'm a spiritual leader, and I've come right, to help you find your way to God. Right? They come on the scene and they say, Here, here's how you can find, I'm not God, but I, I've come to show you, here's the way to God. Here's the way that we can experience the divine. Right? Before the Buddha was the Buddha, he was a prince. And as history goes, he lived in the palace and he was very safe and very secure. And he ventured out one night and then three nights after that, and he saw four different things that really moved him. He saw a sick man, he saw an old man, he saw a dead man, and he saw a poor man. And someone who'd been um, living in luxury his whole life was confronted with suffering in the world. 
And so that moved him to write the Four Noble Truths, which then led him to write um, the Eightfold Path of Enlightenment. And that path is based on eight things, from right thinking to right action, right, 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 right. And so what the Buddha says, he says, hey, if you do this, this is the way you can connect to God. If you follow this path, if you climb this ladder, this is how you become right in line or, or connected to God. It's the same. Muhammad does the same thing in Islam. Hinduism preaches the same thing, that, hey, I'm a prophet, and guess what? I'm going to show you the way to God. And what Jesus says is, I'm God, come to find you. Right, what Jesus says is, I'm not going to make you climb the ladder, I'm going to climb the ladder for you. Right, every other religious leader says, here's the way to God, here's how you find God. Jesus comes on the scene and says, I'm God, come to find you. And so the claim that he makes on your life is far different than just to help you. He doesn't say, I'm just a teacher, he doesn't say, I'm just a religious sage, he says, I'm a savior. And if he's a savior, it means that we have to humble ourselves beneath him, right? But in popular culture, that's not often how Jesus is portrayed, right? In fact, even in my religion classes in college, that was not the Jesus that I encountered in the, in the scriptures, right? Uh, the Jesus that I encountered in college was one who was a very um, passionate social justice guru, right? And they downplayed the sin and downplayed all these things. Well, Jesus, that wasn't really what he meant. He was really about just peace and just love and just harmony. That's what Jesus was about. And so I brought a bumper sticker that I've seen in Madison all the time, and it says this, Obama, okay, just bear with me, okay, calm down, Obama is not a foreign-born, brown-skinned, anti-war socialist that gives away health care. You're thinking of Jesus. Have you seen that? I've seen it all the time in Madison. Okay, I'm not judging this, I'm not saying this is necessarily wrong or right, I'm just saying that there are bumper stickers, right, there are churches, there are religions that are dedicated to showing you this is actually who Jesus is is. This is what Jesus was about. And what I just want to impress on you is that look to the gospel accounts, look to the biographies of Jesus for you to understand who Jesus was, right? It's not based on what, who your parents said Jesus was. It's not based on what some professor said Jesus was. It's not based on what you hear in culture, what some bumper sticker says. You have to encounter the real Jesus for yourself. You have to see him and behold him and spend time examining what did he say? Why is he claiming authority over my life? Why does he say that he forgives my sins? And everyone in this room, why does he say he forgives all of your sins? It would be ludicrous of me to say, hey, Brian, I forgive your sins, dude. Why, why would you say that? Because presumably Brian had never sinned personally against me. But Jesus says, Brian, I'm going to forgive your sins. You're like, what, what, who are you? And this is what opens us into the understanding of who Jesus is. And so John is saying, you need to have a confrontation with the man. No, if you, I was reading through the gospel of John this week, and it struck me over and over again how when Jesus rolls up on the scene, after he leaves a place, the people are like divided about him. Right? Some people say, oh, he's a prophet. Some people say, he's crazy. Some people say, you know, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Some people say, he's just doing this to make much of himself. And some people, right, they say, he's the Messiah. And then Jesus just leaves the scene. And so even when Jesus was walking around in the flesh, people are divided about him. But over and over again, he's asking people to say, do you know who I am? Not what other people say that I am, but do you know who I am? Do you know that I'm a savior, not just a teacher? Do you know that I'm God himself come to find you? Are you beholding that Jesus? Have you encountered that Jesus? Because no one comes up to Jesus and says, ah, oh, what a nice guy. Let's go have some dinner. Right? No one encounters Jesus and says, man, he had some nice things to say. Let's go on with my life. There's a before and after to an encounter with Jesus. It's very much in my mind like having twins. <laughs> Right? It's not in the gospel accounts, but 
It may be. Right? There was a moment where we didn't have twins and life was nice. <laughs> and then there was a moment when twins came and life changed. Right? And now everything in my life is based on three-hour increments, okay? And everything in my life is based on their survival and their living. And just even five and a half months into it, everything in my life has changed. I'm not just randomly thinking about them. Oh, it's nice having kids. Great. I, need, I maybe go should think about them some. Maybe I should go talk to them a little bit, right? No, no, no. The same thing Jesus is saying here. It's as radical of an encounter that you need to have with a living Savior. There's a before and there's an after. Have you encountered the Jesus of Scripture? I just want to encourage you to read the gospel accounts. They're biographical. They're eyewitness. It's not fairy tales. It's not myth. And so two books besides the gospels I just want to point your way in case you're skeptical or you want to just learn more is uh, Philip Yancey's, a great book, The Jesus I Never Knew, and then Tim Keller's, anything by him you should read, Encounters with Jesus, Unexpected Answers to Life's Biggest Questions. Just two books. If you want to write them down, uh, if you want to watch the sermon later, they'll be on the website. Look at those. Um, you cannot become a gospelicious person unless you are continually encountered the Jesus of Scripture. And John is saying, would you behold Jesus? Would you see who he is? He's God come to find you. Okay, I know, just brief, I could talk forever about, about that. And I'll talk a little bit more about it. <laughs> I forgot my boy, C.S. Lewis's great quote. You probably heard it. It's quoted every Easter, but it's not Easter, but I still want to quote it because I'm reading through his works. And um, C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist and became a Christian, he said this. Um, about Jesus. It'll be on the screen too. C.S. Lewis says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Who do you say Jesus is? Your answer to that question will allow you to see the gospel in a way you never have before or see it again in a way you maybe haven't in a long time. Encounter Jesus. Okay, now we're moving on, I promise. Number two, I think John wants us to see the message. Not just the translation of the Bible called the message, but the entire Bible uh, as a story of what God has done. And so what I often hear that people say to me is that the Bible is, is kind of the story of people trying to find their way to God. It's a collection of, of books written about kind of heroes of the faith and how you can kind of be like, you know, David. You can kind of be like Abraham. You can kind of be like these people. And what I want to tell you is that the message of the Bible, right, is actually about not man's search for God, but God's search for man. It parallels who Jesus is, right? And what you think about Scripture will dictate what you think about your faith. Who is the Bible about? What is the Bible about? Is the Bible primarily about me and having a plan for my life? Or is the Bible primarily about God's rescue of people and his reckless desire to pull his family back together? And it will inform how you read from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. It will inform how you read all of Scripture. Is this book primarily about me and meeting my needs? Or is it primarily about God and what he's done through Jesus? John says, see the message. See who it's about. Verse 1. 
see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we're children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know, we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him face to face. Amen, amen, amen. That's great news. So I want to look at three things here. In the King James Version, which translates this, I think, better. I know, King James. We're bringing it back. This is what it says. I think it's on the screen. It will be on the screen. There it is. Behold, right? I just love that word. It's better than see. Behold, John says, what manner of love the Father hath, now you know, hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons or the daughters of God, the children of God. Behold, what manner of love hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons or daughters of God. Can you leave that verse up if you can? What I want us to see here is three things. The kind of love, right, how God gives us the love, and what the purpose of the love is for. Okay, and this translation gets at it closer to the Greek, I think. John says, behold. In the NIV, it translates it great, which I don't think is as, is as helpful because great is more a measurement of something and um, the manner talks about the specific way in which God has loved us, right? So here we go. Behold, what manner of love, that's the first thing. John wants to call our attention to the way in which God has loved us. He doesn't just say, God loves you generally, Right? Isn't it nice that God just loves all of his people, that there's just this kind of love, and like we say we love our socks, right? and we love the brewers, and we love this, and we use the same word to talk about how we love God and how we love a baseball team. Right? It's the same word in English. Okay? And what John wants us to see is so powerful. He wants, us, he wants us to have a confrontation with the way in which God has loved us specifically. That as, as a person, whoever you are, whatever you believe, in a way we're all children of God, yes, because God made us. But there's a specific way in which God loves people, right, who accept him in faith, right? John is saying, do you see the way God has loved you? And the specific way, the manner in which he has loved you is through Jesus, right? That he lived the life you should have lived. He died the death you should have died, and he rose again so that one day you will rise with him. Right? Behold the way in which God has loved us. How, how amazing that. See, if God just loves you generally, if he just says, I love you as I love the trees, that does not move your heart anyway. But John says, behold, the specific way God has loved us is through his son, Jesus. What manner of love. How amazing this love that comes through Jesus, the son. Through him alone is our salvation. Behold this specific love. So he wants us to know the manner, the way in which God loves us is through Jesus, is through the cross, is through the resurrection. It's a very specific kind of love. Right? There's a moment as a Christian where you go from death to life. You aren't becoming a Christian. right? You aren't on a journey. There's a moment where you become born again. And John is saying, when you understand the grace of God, when the grace of God has come into your life, when you've accepted that, you've gone from death to life, and now you know the manner that God has loved you. That's number one. Secondly, behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. In the NIV, it says lavished. Bestowed means, in the Greek, it means gift. Behold the way God has gifted. He's bestowed this love upon us. And it's really a powerful um, Word and, and we really don't use it as much anymore, except for when people get married, right? And you love somebody, yes, and you get engaged to them because you're in love and you want to get married and it's wonderful and great. But there comes a moment in time where you summon up all of your love and you make a promise to the other person that changes their life forever, right? That's what happens at marriage, right? When you're getting married, 
You stand before a minister, you stand before friends and family, and you stand before the authority of God himself, and you say, I'm now bestowing my love to you, that when I bestow my love upon you, your life would be changed. Right? You're gifting your love to someone in a unique way. And what God is saying is that I am bestowing the gift of my presence on you in a specific way. I am giving you the gift. I am giving my DNA into you through the Spirit of God. That's how it happens. Right? I, it's a gift to you. And so John's saying the way in which he loved us is amazing. But not just that he loved us, but now his spirit has been bestowed upon us. He's gifted himself into us. And now his life is our life and we're wrapped up in him. He's given us this rich gift and it's changed us forever. Behold, what manner. Behold, what a gift. Right? Two things already. It's just, it's beautiful. And finally, what's the purpose of the gift? What's the purpose of God's love in this way? He ends the verse one with this. He says that we should be called the sons of God, that we should be called the children of God. The purpose of the cross, the purpose of the scriptures is that you could be invited into the family of Jesus. Right? That's, that's what God is doing here. The end goal is not that you just understand Jesus or not you just understand it's a gift, but that you actually get to be called a child of God. In the text here, it says that we are called children of God. We're not just called it, we actually are. That's our identity now. We're adopted by God through Jesus, through his gift, and now we are his children. So he wants us to behold these things, the way he's loved us, the gift that he's given to us. And now the purpose of it is that you and I get to be family with God. We get to be in the family with God, not separated, right? Right? God, God does not move us away and say, okay, you're, you're in the family, but you're way over there in the bleachers, okay? No, you have a front row seat. You are all around the throne equally, right? This is what God does for us. God says, behold this. Don't forget this. Don't ever forget this. Behold. The final thing here on seeing the message is seeing where we're headed. And this is so important, guys, so important. So in um, verse, the end of verse 2, he says, Dear friends, now we are children of God. Right now, not in the future, right now. Right now, if Christ is in your life, you're a child of God. That's your identity. That's your primary identity. Now you are a child of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This is the beautiful hope that John is saying. He's saying, yes, know the gospel, but also know where you're headed. Know what you're living for. Know who you're living for. That one day when Jesus appears again, you will be like him in a flash. Right? That's the great purpose, is that when Jesus appears again, that we shall be transformed and we shall be like him. When we see him, we will become like him. And so if that's the end game, or really the beginning of our eternal life, our real life with God, that's the beginning of it. If that's where we're headed, then should that not be the purpose of our life now? Not personal happiness, right? Not personal fulfillment. Not toys and trinkets and things. But that we should say that we could become like Christ. That the goal of your life is the goal at the end of your life, to be like Jesus. Right? And the spirit is in you. The gift is in you. You're a child of God. So that what you're living for, right? It does not say when he appears, you will be fully happy. It says when he appears, you'll be like Jesus. And when you're like Jesus, you will be fully happy, right? You see the, you see the difference? You see the order? What you are living for, who you're living for, dictates how you're living now. The hope that you have, what you think the future will be like, that there is a resurrection, right? It's not just that people live happily ever after, and at the end of time, there's this consolation. Oh, isn't this nice? No, no. 
new heaven and new earth is not just the consolation of all things. It's the restoration of all things. That everything you lost, you get back. And you get more. You get more of it. You get better of it. Jesus says it's not just about getting you something in the end. It's about the restoration of your physical body. It's about a new heaven and a new earth. It's about life pulsating through you in a new way. If you're interested more in this, I gave a sermon on this called Home at Last about a year and a half ago. It's on the website. It's, pro- it's probably the favorite talk I've done. I'm not saying it was that great of a talk, but it's the one I actually listened to over and over again because I just, I love it so much because I'm talking about, and I was meditating on where are we headed? Where, where are we going? And I just, I, I love meditating on that because John is saying, know where you came from, know where you're living now, and know the hope that you have. And that as this hope is purifying you, you're trusting in the one who is pure. This is the message. Do you see the message of the scriptures? That where we began in the Garden of Eden, we actually return to. It's now a garden city. When we're, what Ryan was talking about in the story of grace, what a great story. That the house that God is building includes you. That the place God is preparing for you is for you. That the hope that we have is the message of the scriptures. That where we began is where we end, except it's better and it's without sin and it's with Jesus. And we get to be like him and see him and behold him. John's saying, take hold of that now. Right? Take hold of that now. Not just one day. Because if you're saying now, well, one day, one day I'll see Jesus and then it'll be okay. I guarantee you on that day it will not be okay for you. Right? John says, guys, guys, church, church, would you see the message of the scriptures? That it is the great, great story of God's rescue of his family. See Jesus. Behold Jesus of scripture. See the message of the Bible that God's lavished his love upon us. See where we're headed. See the place God is building for us and what he's building in your hearts now. Finally, last thing, see the miracle. Okay, some of you I know are like, okay, I love you. That's why I'm going to say this, okay? I, I work with high school students, and oftentimes when I'm talking with them, not all the time, but sometimes, or even actually, not even high school students, I shouldn't do that to them, but like back in the day when I was in college and I worked with like um, probably fifth, sixth graders, okay? And they grew up in the church, church kids, and uh, we'd, we'd be in Sunday school or whatever, and we'd, I'd say, um, hey, we're going to talk about the Exodus today. And what would they say, right? I know that. <laughs> I've heard that story a thousand times, right? We'd talk about, you know, Jesus feeding of the 5,000, and they'd be like, can we talk about something else, right? I get that. Well, I understand that. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's just a fifth grade, sixth grade problem. I, I have that problem. Where you say, R.D., I see Jesus, I know Jesus, I got it, can we move on? I see the gospel, I know I'm adopted. Okay, what else? And what we have the tendency to do, what the enemy wants us to do, is become so familiar with the things of God that we just become not moved by them. And we become like a sixth grader who says, I got that, can we move on? And the holy fire of God's power and God's presence is no longer palpable. It's very distant, even though it's so close. In fact, it is distant because it's so close and so familiar. Is the presence of God palpable in your heart and in your life? Don't be someone who says, I get that, can we move on? What are you moving on to? What else is there but this, right? First Peter talks about how the angels long to look into the mysteries of the gospel. 
I think angels are pretty smart. I think if it was, if it was just a very basic thing, they wouldn't continually be looking into what God has done in Jesus. A gospel-ish Christian, a real Christian, is someone who marvels at the miracle of their conversion. Are you someone who's filled with wonder, filled with marveling that you're a Christian, right? Someone who's a gospel-ish, a real, I, I use the term real Christian, I know that's going to step on some toes. Um, who are you to say who's real? Okay, I, I'm no one. I'm saying what scripture says. I'm saying what John says. I'm saying that someone who's been transformed by the grace of God says, me, a Christian? Craziness, madness, what a joke. <laughs> me? See, when you see that Jesus is not just some teacher who exists for other people, when you see that the scriptures are not just some great story of literature for other people, but you see that you are, in fact, bound up in the life of Jesus, and, in fact, you are actually in this story, you are in this book, you say, behold, a miracle. Me, a Christian? Unbelievable. I can't believe it. How could this happen? Right, John, John is, I think, expressing in verses one through four that he is saying something. I know he's an old man. I know he's, he could preach this a thousand times. And at some point, the truth in his mind just goes ballistic, right? He knows all these things, right? He's not, this is not new knowledge to him, but it's knowledge on fire. It's knowledge that goes from his mind and flows out of his heart and affects everything. He just says, see what kind of love this is that God has for us. It's unbelievable. Me, a Christian, what? He doesn't say, yes, God loves us. Isn't that great? Let's talk about other things. No one's going to follow that guy. How does this happen? Well, it happens by seeing Jesus. It happens by seeing the message. But also, looking back on the rest of 1 John, it happens by repenting and turning from your sin. You will not experience a revival in your heart if you're living in unconfessed sin or habitual sin. It will not happen. You're saying, I want this. I want this to happen in my heart. Well, check your heart. Are you confessing and repenting to God and to other people? Are you in a community of brothers and sisters who you're accountable to? Right? It's not just you on an island living your own life, but are you accountable to other people? John is saying, here's how you know. You're seeing Jesus, you're beholding Jesus, you're beholding the scriptures, you're repenting of your sin, you're in community. And it doesn't mean that every time you sit down for a quiet time, you burst into tears or song. Okay? That's weird. Okay? That's like not normal. But what it does mean is this. Sometimes I get up in the morning, right? I get my coffee, um, which sometimes is good, sometimes it's not so good, but I just love it. Okay? That was for free. And then I get those, open up the scriptures, and sometimes I'm reading through the Psalms, and you know, I'm thinking about the rest of my day and, and the girls and, and work and a thousand things. And sometimes I'm just, I get a few verses in, and I'm like, oh, <laughs> right? And it just kind of warms my heart, or it doesn't actually do a lot. But sometimes I have the Holy Spirit actually blow up my heart in just the middle of reading a verse I've read a thousand times. I always knew that God was a good father who loved his children, but it wasn't to, until I saw my daughters have a shot put in them that I understood, I understood in a fresh way what it must have been like for the father to watch his son suffer and cry. Right? God gives us moments in our life where he says, are you, are you seeing what I've done? 
Not every quiet time is going to blow up. And there are going to be seasons in your life where you're walking through a very hard time, a difficult time. I'm not saying if you're walking through a hard time, a, a very hard time, that I'm just saying, well, just buck up and be happy. Right? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying God will give you more than you can handle so that in your inability to handle it, it would drive you to him. It would drive you to other people. God, is it a miracle that you're a Christian? When you see all of your life as a gift, as a bestowing of a gift of God, you won't be anger, you won't be bitter, you won't be mad. A religious person says, God's in my debt. A gospelicious Christian says, I'm in God's debt, right? And yet God's paid the debt himself. I don't have to earn it. That's what it means. Right, I'm sure those of you who are fortunate enough to work and have jobs, right, enjoy getting a paycheck, right, enjoy getting paid. I don't, I don't, this may be what happens. I don't think it is. When you get a paycheck, you don't open up the paycheck and say, behold, I've been paid. See, you've paid me. Is this real? Are you real? Is this really my life? You've paid me. Unbelievable. It's a miracle. You say, of course you paid me. I worked, right? Sure, you paid me. I worked. Nothing to get excited about. If you ask a religious moral person if they're a Christian, they'll say, sure, I'm a Christian. Of course I'm a Christian. My friends, if you're a Christian who's encountered the grace of God in this way, there's no sure thing about it. There's no of courseness about it. It's a miracle. And you're wondering and marveling that God has done this for you. It's unbelievable what he's done for me. See, a real Christian looks at the life they deserve and says, I deserve a far worse life. I don't deserve the kind of family I have. I don't deserve life and breath and a house and kids. I don't, I don't deserve salvation. I don't deserve any of that. A real, Christian, a real Christian says, I see the life I deserved, and I see the, Christ, the life that Christ deserved. And I see now that he's actually given me his life through bestowing of his gift of, his, of himself. And now what the life I deserve becomes the life I never deserved. And I say, unbelievable, what a miracle. See, if you have this type of faith, then you say, yeah, my work hasn't worked out like it should. Yeah, my romantic life hasn't worked out like it should. Yeah, I wish my kids were like this. Yeah, a lot of things in my life haven't gone the way that they should. But I know my father loves me. I know at the end, somehow it all works. And it's not blind faith because I've seen Jesus. I've seen the message of the scripture. And I look at my life and I say, I'm a Christian. Who would have thunk it? To the degree that you are beholding the love of God is to the degree that in plenty or want, you will say, I'm okay. Because I know Jesus. And he's enough. And one day, one, one day, church, one day I will see him face to face and I will be like him. Real Christianity is this. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood. Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? 
Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Hey, let's pray together. Our Father, Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for John, who just, the Spirit just grabbed him and changed him. And the truth went just radioactive. I pray that for my friends here. I pray for those who are skeptical, who are unsure, that they would consider you and what you've done, that they would have an encounter with you and your word and your presence. They would see the scriptures. They would encounter the actual living word. And they could see that they can also become a miracle of your grace. Father, we love you. We're grateful that we are your children, that you are a father, that you have lavished your love upon us. That it's nothing that we deserve. The life that we deserve is far worse. And what we get is your life, your life for ours. Father, would we always marvel at the miracle of our conversion and stand in awe and astonishment at what you've done. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, all of God's people said, amen.